Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. At the core of the Handel and Haydn Society's repertoire are works composed by giants of the Baroque and classical periods. Composers belonging to the latter, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, remained in circulation, so to speak, from the time they lived until the present day. But many of the composers of the former period, the Baroque, required extensive efforts by musicians and musicologists in order to be reintroduced to audiences. Even a towering figure such as Bach was almost entirely forgotten after his death. Bach's friend Georg Philipp Telemann is another such composer, one of the most prolific in Western classical music and highly regarded in his own lifetime. Audiences regularly register their encounters with Telemann as a previously unknown revelation. Here is a bit of Telemann, the first movement of his viola concerto, performed by our former principal violist Karina Schmitz and members of the Handel and Haydn Society. There is much to say about Telemann's music, but that is not the only point of interest he presents. Today, I'm speaking with violinist Julie Levin. Julie is one of Boston's most established early music violinists, having been a longtime member of Handel and Haydn and Boston Baroque, as well as other groups, both here and abroad. She performs on modern violin as a member of the Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra. She is also the founder and artistic director of Shelter Music in Boston, a highly impactful nonprofit that presents free classical music concerts at homeless shelters and recovery centers and is the topic of a future episode. Julia has some information to share about Telemann, a composer we're both passionate about, and some of it may surprise you. Julie, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Could we spend a few minutes on you before we delve into Telemann? How long have you been a member of Handel and Haydn? I have been a member of the Handel and Haydn Society for 34 years. Does that make you the longest serving member of the ensemble? There are a couple of other players in the group currently who are longtime members. And I will say that it is really an honor to be part of an ensemble that values the experience of a, a longtime player in the group, because that's not always the case, particularly in the, the freelance scene here in Boston and nationally. Absolutely. It's great to have you. I suspect that you began playing the violin on a modern instrument. Yes, I did. How did the addition of a period violin happen for you? I went to the Oberlin College and Conservatory, and my teacher was one of the members of the Oberlin Baroque Ensemble, and also at that time performing nationally and internationally on period instruments, and that's Marilyn McDonald. In fact, we have a number of colleagues in the Handel and Hyde Society who have studied with Marilyn. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by the sound of the period instruments. And I began to work on the period violin in my final year at Oberlin. But I was doing the double degree program there, which meant I was enrolled in both the college and the conservatory. So I had the requirements for two bachelor's degrees to fulfill. And adding another scholarly pursuit near the end became a bit much. So I, I sort of had to let it go. However, I had the sound in my ears from many years of attending the Baroque Ensemble concerts and hearing excellent performances by renowned players. And when I came to Boston, I decided, okay, that's it. I'm going to get myself one of those violins and learn how to do this. And luckily here in Boston, we had and still have so many wonderful players to learn from and with and I was extremely lucky to start working almost as soon as I had the instrument in my hands. And it's been a fantastic learning adventure ever since. Can you tell me something about the actual instrument that you have and how you came about getting it? Yeah, I'm honored to have the Baroque violin that I have, which of course I use for classical era music as well. It was owned by Robert Koff, who was the original second violinist of the Juilliard String Quartet. And when he retired from the Juilliard Quartet, he came to Boston area, in fact, Lexington, and became a professor at Brandeis. And then he retired from that. And at that point later in his career is when I met him, because he was selling this particular violin, which he had experimented with when he retired from the quartet, he became interested in period instrument performances and scholarly pursuits and just finding out what, what did it mean to play a phrase of Bach on an instrument that was set up in the way an instrument of Bach's time would have been set up. And so he restored an inexpensive instrument as his first Baroque violin. And then he moved on to a fine instrument later. And so he was selling the first instrument and I heard about it and I went to his house. It was very exciting to meet the former second violinist of the esteemed Juilliard String Quartet. And I loved the violin. It has a very dark sound. And he was so generous. He was such a mentor for many musicians. And uh, it was so early in my career. I was dirt poor. I was paying my college loans. He generously said, 
you want the instrument, you decide how much you can pay me as a down payment. It could be $5. And then you pay me every month, and that could be $5 too, until you pay it off. And so I did. I paid him a bit more than $5 each time. It's always an honor to come to that violin knowing how it came to me and where it was before I was playing on it. It's an amazing story. I also am the beneficiary of someone's generosity in getting to play the instrument that I play, which I would never be able to under any other circumstance. And some people know, some people don't. The partnership that we all have with our instruments is like a real partnership. It's not just a, a tool. It's a, it's a character that's part of our um, music making. Absolutely. It's a voice. It's, it enables our voices as musicians to emerge since we're not singers. So when I reached out to my friends and colleagues recently, you replied with a very specific and very, very interesting idea, which involved the composer Georg Philipp Telemann. So to start, is Telemann's music a particular love of yours? I would say yes. I have played quite a bit of Telemann, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, it's not programmed as often as it could be. And in fact, I have made a project of playing all 12 of the Telemann's Fantasies for Solo Violin for Shelter Music Boston concerts. And that has been one of the ways that I've gotten to know Telemann better along my journey as a musician. And those pieces probably were written as teaching devices. However, each one is really like a little universe in that it covers quite a bit of emotional territory. Telemann isn't often thought of as a composer who covers such a wide variety of emotional territory, but I think that's because people haven't heard enough Telemann, particularly in these solo fantasies. It's remarkable what he can do in two pages of music for one instrument. Simple music, seemingly simple, but ultimately complex in the hands of a master who can deftly draw with a simple line something of great communicative capacity. I think it's no exaggeration to say, and, and you've just mentioned, that Telemann is to this day eclipsed by his friend Johann Sebastian Bach and by George Frederick Handel, with whom he went to school. As a result, his music is played less often and audiences remain less familiar with him. Could you help me rectify this a bit and tell our listeners something of his life and his work? Sure. He was prolific. In fact, there seems to be a debate about how many cantatas he wrote. As you said, Bach eclipsed him being known as a cantata writer. But I've seen numbers over a thousand church cantatas written by Telemann. 46 passions. Of course, we know far fewer by Bach, but performed far more often. Supposedly, there are remnants from 17 operas, eight oratorios, hundreds of concertos, and significant numbers of chamber works and solo works, such as the wonderful Fantasias for Solo Violin that I've already mentioned. He had in mind to be a teacher. He wrote the first music periodical. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it in German because my German is not worthy of a podcast, but in English, the title is The Faithful Music Master. And that was something he published as a, a serial publication. Now we call it entrepreneurial. I, I believe then he was just super creative and inventive, which is definitely true of his music. 
it is really wonderful for us as musicians in the 21st century that we have so much of his music and hopefully we'll be able to explore more of it. It's almost the case that he wasn't a musician, in fact. His, his mother did not want him to be a musician. She apparently is purported to have hidden away some of his instruments that he, he was largely self-taught and uh, played a significant number of instruments, actually, ranging from the violin, the recorder, the zither. He learned to play the flute, the oboe, the shalomo, which is the predecessor of the clarinet, viola da gamba, and bass trombone. He was encouraged by his family, particularly his mother, to study law. He went to Leipzig in 1701 and was trying to study law, but his heart and soul were not in it. And music took him over and emerged as his calling. Wow. So I find it interesting, especially in light of the previous statement about how overshadowed by Bach he is. And that's partly to do with the Bach revival begun in the early part of the 19th century. But these two were friends. And in fact, Telemann's early career took him, first of all, to Eisenach, where Bach was born, and then to Leipzig before Bach had arrived there. And then they tried out for the same position at some point. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's uh, St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. In fact, Telemann was the first choice for that position. Right. And Bach was the third choice. <laughs> After, um, is it Graupner? That's correct. Graupner That's correct. Second choice. Yeah, a composer and musician that we don't hear much about at all these days. But yeah, Telemann was the first choice. And he declined because he was having so much fun in Hamburg. He was established in, in other artistic genres at the time. Interestingly, Telemann's music, like Bach's music and Vivaldi, went completely out of style after his death. And apparently there was a performance of something of his in the early 19th century, and that was the last known performance until around mid-20th century when, like Vivaldi, Telemann's music started to be revived. And that's interestingly the same time that the period instrument movement was starting to bubble up in Western Europe. Right. He's certainly one of the composers who's benefited from the efforts of musicologists and performers who are sometimes one and the same in the early music movement. Uh, interesting you should mention going out of fashion right after his death because you know textbooks will teach us that the Baroque period ended in 1750. Bach died in 1750. That's usually accounted for as the reason for that. But Telemann, along with Handel and Scarlatti, lived quite a bit after Bach and into early classicism and yet maintained his compositional style throughout. So uh, interesting side note on textbooks. It's not exactly so yeah. as black and white. Right? Interesting. Telemann lived till 1767. So in preparing for this conversation, I looked into Telemann a bit, and I hope our listeners will do the same. There is more information online and various resources, and I hope that what you're saying inspires them to look into this extremely interesting musician. One of the things that I found most interesting about him is one of the things that's evident in his music, and that's the cosmopolitan nature of it. Bach obviously never composed an opera didn't travel far, and certainly never outside of Germany. Telemann is someone who 
really embrace national styles from other places. Did you come across this as well in your research into him? Yes. Well, partly I think it was his openness to wherever he was uh, early in his career. He had a position in a part of Germany that is now actually Poland. And presumably the, the style of music he heard there was quite different. And he does make use of some styles that we can refer to as influenced by Polish style perhaps played by folk musicians or the musicians in the church where he worked. He had been requested to write in the French style, so he figured out how to do that. Of course, Bach wrote French overtures as well, but Telemann, I gather from the breadth of his interests and his experimental nature in, in his compositions that he, he was just happy to try things, and maybe his personality was more like Haydn's than Bach's, uh, was purported to be quite a lighthearted, joyful fellow. And I get that from Telemann, that the humor, willingness to experiment. I believe he just took whatever came to him and, and decided to experiment with that. So these are all admirable and compelling facts, and the quality of his compositions backs up the esteem that I think you and I both agree that he should enjoy among listeners today. I was really happy when you wrote because this would present an opportunity to highlight some of these facts. But I was also excited because it gave me an opportunity to do something I've done since I was a teen, which is to try to find out as much as is available about the personality of the composer. And you've just hinted at a few elements of that personality. This is something that can backfire sometimes, right? You can discover someone whose music you love is a real jerk or worse. But in Telemann's case, this is not a danger at all. And he flies in opposition to a misconception that I know I've had, that these men from this period were austere and strict and somehow severe. What elements of his personality do you enjoy thinking about? Well, I particularly enjoy Telemann's literary passions. He was a poet and he was a longtime supporter of young German poets. He was also very interested in satire. He supposedly wrote a satirical novel, and he is quite well known for eulogy poems, particularly the one he wrote for his first wife, who died only shortly after their daughter was born. He had been quite smitten with her, and he was uh, forlorn and depressed and mournful for quite a while following her death. Uh, he also wrote eulogy poems for his friends, composer Johann Sebastian Bach and Pisendel. And his interest in satire, he did write a Gulliver's Travel Suite for two violins. That was to celebrate the publication in German. Apparently he read Swift in German, and that piece is absolutely hilarious. And he employs a technique that is not only enjoyable for the audience, but there's a private joke for the performers. He puts the Lilliputians and the Brobdingnagians together in the same movement. Of course, the Lilliputians being the, the tiny scurrying around creatures that Gulliver encounters and the Brobdingnagians, the enormous clumpy giants. And what Telemann has done in this movement is the Lilliputians are represented by 132nd notes, which means there are these tiny scrawling notes all over the page. And so you see lots of black dots and little lines, and it looks like scurrying. 
And the Brobdingnagians are represented by enormous whole notes, which are big circles that have lots of space around them. And there are only a few bars of music for the Brobdingnagians while the Lilliputians are just scurrying everywhere. It's hilarious. There's a term for this. It's called eye music. And so not only was the audience hearing something cleverly satirical, but the musicians were privately enjoying the look of this music on the page. It's really quite charming. So that's an extremely compelling page of music to both listen to and look at. Hopefully these qualities you describe also held Telemann in good stead because not all of his life was particularly rosy. You mentioned the death of his first wife. He did remarry, and that was not a particularly happy marriage. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yes, he remarried the young woman he had engaged to assist with raising his daughter. And they were living in Hamburg when she was purported to have had a highly public affair with a Swedish military officer. Apparently, local newspapers published detailed accounts of her social outings, romantic conquests, and Telemann was mocked as the aging, senile, and scorned husband. She was also a gambler, and she racked up quite a few gambling debts, which sadly he was saddled with paying off. However, he turned this into a comic work, which I I hope we can perform sometime. It's a comic intermezzo called The Unequal Marriage Between Vespetta and Pinone, or The Domineering Chambermaid story of a young chambermaid who marries her old employer and in due course completely dominates the relationship. So he's mirroring his own marital situation. So he's poking fun at his own sad situation. Absolutely. You know, he made lemonade from lemons. You mentioned that he was saddled with these debts. He apparently was able to pay them because along with being a gifted composer, he was also quite a good businessman. How does that manifest itself around his music? He was quite creative in publishing his own music. He studied business models of two other well-known music publishers in Europe at the time, Etienne Roger and John Walsh. And he basically improved on the engraving practices that were in use. Instead of using copper plates, he starts to use pewter which is a much softer metal, and that made it easier for engravers to use stamps to hammer in note heads, rest letters. This meant that things could be done more quickly and there was more flexibility. He replaced individually carved title pages with a modular frame and insert design. So that's almost like assembly line, right? Like, you know, don't change it every time, but use a template. And he included room to advertise other titles on his title pages. So presumably he was advertising his own music, perhaps advertising his poetry publications, other artists, who knows. He floated the idea of the buy two, get one free sale. Wow. (laughs) So how about that? That's amazing. He used networks that he had with publishers for books. He set up a European distribution network, and he sent out catalogs of what was coming next and solicited subscribers to help fund the printing process. Let's call it Kickstarter. And then he he issued some of his music in serial form, which encouraged people to be excited and then get, get on, on board to purchase the next edition. 
So he had some really wonderful business plan ideas that he was able to implement. Well, he sounds like an all-around great guy, uh, honorable, generous, humorous, and obviously gifted and successful. I'd like to get to the topic you initially brought up, and it has to do with a hobby. Can you tell us what this hobby is? This is the beautiful avocation, I would call it, of gardening. Telemann said, I am insatiable where hyacinths and tulips are concerned, greedy for ranunculi and especially for anemones. And in 1742, about two years into his big leap into gardening, he wrote, while music is my field and plow and serves to give me many of my keenest pleasures, I have lately attached myself to a new suitor, namely the love of flowers. Wow. So he was serious. Yes, he was. (laughs) Before we get to him, I want to know, what is growing in your garden? What are your favorite things to grow and what's there now? I'd love to refer to what I have that Telemann has because I had a lot of fun finding out that I was growing some of the things that Telemann saw and grew. Absolutely. And I'll start with my very favorite, which is called Lobelia cardinalis, cardinal flower. It is brilliant red. It's a flower that grows on a tall stalk. It can be up to five feet tall, and it attracts hummingbirds, which has become another one of my passions to sit with my binoculars and watch the hummingbirds enjoying my Lobelia cardinalis. So I was thrilled to see that in 1742, Telemann was growing Lobelia cardinalis in his garden in Hamburg. He also had balloon flower, white campanula, which I have a lot of, another tall flower that's quite beautiful. He was growing asters, dianthus, chrysanthemums, and the marigold. Telemann had marigolds of many colors in his garden. And one fantastic thing I love about marigolds is they bloom all the way until frost. So while everything's fading away, these little red and yellow and orange golden, joyful balls of happiness are still soldiering along out there while it's getting cold. I started saving marigold blossoms, and now I have a cottage industry. There are a number of members of the Handel and Haydn Society Orchestra. Susanna Ogata and Ann Black are both growing my marigolds this season. I believe you are too, Well, you know, when this horrible crisis began and I understood that I was going to spend my summer at home for the first time in 23 years. The silver lining around that is that I've always wanted a garden. I've always wanted to grow vegetables. And so that has become a reality. And I learned that growing marigolds around vegetables also protects the vegetables from pests. And so right around that time, you sent me some seeds. And amazingly, I now have a fortress of marigolds protecting some uh, parsnips and cucumbers and I think some radishes. Do you know if the flowers and plants Telemann grew were indigenous to North Germany, or did he seek plants from elsewhere? Some of each, actually. There's this famous quote about Handel sending him a box of exotic flowers from London. And of course, in London, famous for its flower market for centuries, there's a long tradition of being able to aggregate flowers and seeds and bulbs from trade across the globe. Interestingly, there's a garden in Philadelphia that is the oldest botanical garden in the United States, started by a Quaker gentleman named John Bartram. 
And there seems to be correspondence between Bartram and the London people that Handel knew. Bartram was in touch with Peter Collinson. And Collinson was one of the early directors of the Foundling Hospital, which, of course, was associated with Handel and the Messiah, which the Handel and Hines Society has given the United States premiere of that work. So, you know, there are all these little connections that are so interesting. One tends to forget, or at least I tend to forget, what was happening in the United States at the same time. And the story that you're telling is really bringing those two worlds together and in a way well, flowers are what was happening <laughs> at the same yeah. time in, in both places. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad you're, you're talking about it. Do we have any further information from Telemann about his techniques or what he did while gardening? I became intrigued by this connection to the Bartram's Garden in Philadelphia. I wrote to the curator of plants there and asked him about this Telemann garden connection. His name's Joel Fry. And I asked him particularly about some information I had read about Telemann's garden in Hamburg, that it, it lasted well into the 19th century. But then I couldn't find anything more. Like what happened? Was the house torn down? Was it taken over? Did they make it into a parking lot? Unfortunately, he did not know anything more about what happened. But he wrote me back about the exotic plants that Handel sent to Telemann, and it very likely included some North American native plants from Bartram's oh. stock. In the mid-18th century, Bartram's plants that went to London were woody plants, North American trees and shrubs, azaleas, rhododendrons, viburnums, hydrangeas, and more. And of course, we, we see those beautiful blossoming shrubs here in the spring, and I associate them so much with North America. And it's wonderful to know that North America was sharing them with Europe. So, Julie, you share an avocation with Telemann. Does this tell you anything about the man and his music? Does it reveal anything to you? That's a, such an interesting question. Thank you. <laughs> Certainly, I find his his music extremely colorful, and I and I think that that is one of the things that is overlooked in his music. When we as musicians are doing the bulk of our work, which is in rehearsals, that's when we have an opportunity to discuss with each other how to bring out the emotional territory of music, the colors that we want to communicate. I think color was very important to him. Also, in gardening, you're kind of out of control. Uh, you can you can water, you can nurse things along, but there are weeds, there's extra sun, there are pests that eat your precious tulip right before it blooms, and you've been waiting for that purple flower to brighten your day. So, you know, sort of the, well, that's life. you got to let go and keep gardening. I think his life through so many things at him, and I think his personality was flexible. That's definitely something one needs to find joy in gardening. This has been such an interesting and unexpected direction into Telemann's life that you've provided for me and our listeners. I'm grateful to you for joining me today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's really been fun, and I hope the listeners will have fun, too. Thanks. Julie Levin is a member of the violin section of the Handel and Haydn Society and founder and artistic director of Shelter Music in Boston. 
Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandheiden.org slash podcast. There you can find previous episodes as well as supplementary material to this one, including photos of my and Julie's marigolds, a copy of one of Telemann's beautifully handwritten manuscripts, and a list of Telemann's plants from 1742. If you have photos of any of these plants growing in your garden and would like to share them, please send them to me at gfishman at handleandhyden.org, and I'll gladly add them to the page. I hope you'll join me for the next episode.